The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, 
so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true drink, and my blood, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The word of God for the people of God. All right, well, we're continuing this morning our preaching series in the Gospel according to John, page 838, if you're using one of the Bibles under your seat, uh, John chapter 6. I, I just like to listen to Scripture readers and see what they do with phrases like, drink my blood. <laughs> like, bread just had to just flow with that. It felt very kind of Halloween, didn't it? And it's like appropriate for this time of year. There's a lot to talk about in this text, y'all. Let's dive in. Um, in the sp- oh, by the way, if you're newer to Quorum Deo, um, I've got these little uh, Gospel According to John uh, scripture guides. It has the text of the gospel along with some pages for journaling. We ran out a few weeks ago, but I got some more. So if you'll come see me afterwards, if you'd like one of those, uh, I'd love to give one to you. And um, I'm going to use both that and my regular Bible this morning as we uh, work through this passage. In the spring of 2020, just as the COVID pandemic set in, something unexpected happened. Uh, Maybe you remember hearing about this. Bread recipes became the number one search term on Google. And what was odd was this was not just a United States thing. Across the world, from Turkey to New Zealand to Nigeria, everybody was looking for homemade bread recipes. The sudden interest in baking actually led to a flour shortage that drove up prices of every other grain. So Bolivia and Peru were caught off guard by the sudden demand for quinoa. And the Ethiopian government last year put export controls on teff, which is a grain indigenous to Ethiopia. It's as if the whole world suddenly rediscovered the simple joy of bread, because we were all sitting around our houses. Bread is one of the oldest foods in the world, first baked in the Mediterranean basin at the dawn of human history, Uh, then adapted by the ancient Egyptians who introduced us to yeast around 1350 BC and changed the whole game. And then it was commercialized by the Romans who built an incredible supply chain that brought flour from North Africa to Rome daily to keep the bakeries running. At its height, the Roman Empire was providing 300,000 free loaves of bread every month to citizens of Rome. You might have noticed recently even Tom Brady got in on the joy of bread. Maybe you've seen this Subway commercial where he's just sniffing a loaf of bread. Bread is a staple of human existence in almost every culture 
on earth. Now, little warning for you this morning. I know many of you are gluten-free for various reasons. You might be triggered by the passage this morning. It mentions bread a lot, all right? Uh, I am the bread of life. That's the assertion Jesus makes here. We see it in verse 30, 35 and in verse 48. And really the whole discourse is built around that claim from the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Isaiah did such a great job explaining last week, uh, this discourse comes on the heels of Jesus' most famous miracle, which is the feeding of the 5,000. So what happens is Jesus provides bread for the people, and then he claims to be the bread. So the miracle sets up the ensuing discourse. So we're going to think this morning about what it means that Jesus is the bread of life. And I decided I wanted to do something fun to make this sermon memorable for you. I thought, you know, the I am statements in the Gospel of John are really central to the whole book. And so here we have one of them, I am the bread of life. So I decided, man, what can we do to just really make this a memorable morning? And so here's what we did. We called up our friends at Great Harvest Bread down the street and got a bunch of bread for y'all. So you're walking out of here today. I'm, the reason the offering box is in a different spot is because on your way out, I want you all to take home a loaf of bread. And there's a lot of bread out there and don't leave any here. I need you guys to take some bread. All right. Um, and the reason for that is, I, I just imagine if this, you know, if you have kids or if you're gathering around with your roommates, I just would love for you to cut into a loaf of bread as you sort of think about the bread of life discourse and have that be a reinforcing and, and reminding sort of thing that makes this text really memorable for you today. Now, the crowd that was present when Jesus said this heard Jesus say the words, I am the bread of life. The problem is that they failed to grasp exactly what he meant. And we have the same problem. It's obvious as we read that Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. The question is, what exactly does that mean? And what does Jesus want us to do with that? What's the, what's the point he's making here? You've noticed repeatedly, this goes all the way back to John chapter 4 and the woman at the well, that Jesus is tapping into these metaphors of hunger and thirst, because humanly speaking, we know that these things speak to deeper realities in us, right? Like, like, yes, we're hungry, but we're also hungry. And we're thirsty, but we're also thirsty. These speak to deep longings that we have. And so again, this morning, Jesus offers himself as the answer to our hunger, as, as the bread of life. And so I want to explore three questions this morning. One, what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Two, what are we to do with the bread of life? And then three, what happens when we eat this bread? What does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? What are we to do with the bread of life? And what happens when we eat this bread? So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's think first about what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? What is he communicating in this? There's a crucial backstory to this whole chapter, a prequel without which we can't possibly understand what's going on here. So I want you to hold your spot in John 6 and turn back in your Bible to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, chapter 16. This is the backstory to John 6. And I want to read you the first four verses of Exodus 16 so you can sort of enter into the story. It says, They set out from Elim, 
And all the, peop- all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is b- between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. The text goes on to describe God's provision of manna, this sort of miraculous provision that provided food for the people. Now, flip back to John chapter 6, and I want you to notice two things. Notice, first of all, the phrase bread from heaven in verse 31. And notice the statement in verse 41 where it says, the Jews grumbled about him. John chapter 6 is intentionally borrowing from Exodus 16. John wants us to see these two chapters in parallel. He's intentionally writing in a way that calls to mind the narrative of Exodus 16. Notice also what Jesus says in John 6 verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. As we have seen before, Jesus is again teaching us here how to read the Bible. He's saying there's a lesser to greater relationship between that story and this one, between what God was doing in Moses and what God is doing in Jesus. Yes, Jesus says, Moses gave you bread from heaven, but that bread was only a placeholder, a foreshadowing, a hint of the true bread from heaven, which is Jesus himself. In our educational system, we have what we refer to as prep schools. Some of them even have explicit names like Creighton Prep. These schools exist to prepare students for college. They anticipate the workload and the curriculum and the objectives associated with a college liberal arts education. Jesus is telling us the exodus back then under Moses was really just Exodus prep. The real Exodus is happening now in Jesus. This is the real thing that that got us ready for and anticipated and pointed to. Listen to N.T. Wright. He writes, The bread and the fish were there to open up their understanding to the fact that the new Passover, the new Exodus, was taking place right in front of them and that Jesus was leading it. In Jesus and in everything he is doing, the same God is at work who was at work in the Exodus story. So John is intentionally laying this narrative over Exodus 16 and saying, that pointed to this. This is the real Exodus. This is the real Passover. This is the real thing God has been preparing his people for. So what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Well, It means that he is the true gift of God. 
He is the true sustainer of life. He is the food that nourishes his people as they travel from Egypt to Canaan. Which brings us then to the second question. What are we to do with the bread of life? Look at verse 48 and following. I am the bread of life, Jesus repeats. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So what are we to do with this bread of life? We are to eat. Eat of this bread. That's what Jesus says. But what exactly does that mean? That question has generated no small debate throughout church history. So let's do a little historical work. Let's enter into some of the debate this text has raised so that we can better understand what are we to do? What does Jesus mean when he says eat? You may have noticed that as this passage goes on, the language becomes more and more stark and more and more vivid. And in fact, more and more Halloweenish and kind of troubling, right? Verse 53. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This language is perplexing, right? I remember back when we were meeting at the middle school down the street a few years ago, we sang a song that was sort of based on this text. It's an old hymn. I think it was written by Charles Wesley. It's like a storied old hymn that talks about drinking blood. And this woman who was not a Christian was very disturbed after the service. She came to grab me. She's like, what is that song that we just sang? That is troubling, right? And so sometimes we take for granted, because we're used to this language, if we've been around the Bible a little bit, we take for granted how stark and how sort of upsetting and disconcerting this language can be. Well, the stark language, especially toward the end of this passage, has led the Roman Catholic tradition to develop its doctrine of the Mass. As you may know, some of this is, is you guys come from this tradition. The Roman Catholic tradition holds that when a priest blesses the bread and wine, it actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus through a miracle known as transubstantiation. And so, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, when you partake of the Mass, you are really and truly eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. And that's why the Mass is so central, the Eucharist is so central to Roman Catholic worship. Let me read to you a few paragraphs from the official catechism of the Catholic Church so you can hear how this is articulated. It says, By the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. It is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. So catch that. The same Christ who offered himself on the cross is now in, offered in an unbloody manner in this divine sacrifice of the Mass. Now, it was this doctrine that the Protestant reformers 
protested and reacted rather strongly against, and for good reason. Because the idea that the Mass is a divine sacrifice that takes place in an unbloody manner runs counter to the teaching of the book of Hebrews, where we read this, Hebrews chapter 7, He, Christ, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And then Hebrews 10, 10 says this, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So notice the language of Hebrews is once for all. According to the Bible, the body of Jesus Christ has been offered on the cross once for all, and that's the only sacrifice we need. And therefore, the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's table, is a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And in fact, Christ is very much present in this sacrament, but not in a physical way. He is present through the Holy Spirit, confirming his covenant with us and communicating his grace to us. We are a Protestant church, and so unapologetically, I just want to explain to you the places where we will differ on this text from many of the traditions you might have come from. And I also want to help you understand sort of how they read this text as well. Now, here's the thing we need to not shy away from. Does Jesus say in this text, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Yes, he does. It's right there in verse 54. So don't try to pretend like, oh, that's not in there. No, it's right there, okay? But here's the thing. Jesus also tells us what he means in saying that. So we need to not just look at verse 54, but see how Jesus in the whole passage explains what he means when he says that. Look again at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So notice the action that is demanded there. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What should you do with that? Well, you should come to me, believe in me. That's what will fill your hunger and quench your thirst. Notice also the parallels between verse 40 and verse 54. Notice how these texts are exactly parallel. Verse 40 says this, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And then verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. In other words, looking on and believing are parallel ideas to eating and drinking. And this clues us into the fact that the language of eating and drinking throughout this passage is metaphorical. Jesus is saying something and saying it in a stark and profound way, but also using metaphorical language. And this shouldn't surprise us because we actually use the language of eating metaphorically all the time. Catch this from D.A. Carson. He says, we devour books, drink in lectures, swallow stories, ruminate on ideas, chew over a matter, and eat our own words. What he's saying is these are all metaphorical ways in English of talking about eating in a metaphorical way. That's what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, maybe you're not convinced yet. Maybe you think I'm pulling some of that shifty Protestant logic on you. 
So I just want to show you the smoking gun, all right? I want to show you that actually what Jesus is doing, as always, as you should come to expect by now in the Gospel of John, what Jesus is doing is just referencing an Old Testament story that every one of his hearers would have been familiar with. So look with me on the screen at the text of 2 Samuel 23. If you want to flip there in your Bible, you can, but you got to know where 2 Samuel is, all right? Here's what it says. 2 Samuel 23, this is a story about David. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives. Therefore, he would not drink it. Commenting on this passage, N.T. Wright observes, David refused to drink the blood of his comrades. That is, to profit from the risk of their lives. Jesus, as the true Messiah, is going one better again. He will put his own life at risk. Indeed, he will actually lose it. And his comrades will profit from that death. They will drink his blood. They will have their thirst quenched by his death and all that it means. When Jesus says, drink my blood, he's speaking in the same metaphorical way David was when he said, how could I drink the blood of these men? He's speaking about the prophet that will come to his people from his death on the cross. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So what are we to do with the bread of life? We are to eat it. And what it means to eat is to come to Jesus, to believe in him, and to keep coming back and keep again believing that he can fill us up, that he can satisfy our deepest hunger and longings, coming to him again in faith and repentance and hope and trust. As St. Augustine said quite simply, believe and you have eaten. John Calvin summarizes well the teaching of this passage when he writes this, Faith does not look at Christ only at a distance but embraces him, that he may become ours and may dwell in us. We come to him as hungry persons, that he may fill us. What a great corrective to our intellectualized understanding of faith that says what it means to come to Jesus is to believe some things about him. No, Jesus says what it means to come to me is eat. Come take hold of me. See your need for me. Come to me as a hungry person that I may fill you up. Faith does not look at Christ only at a distance, but embraces him. Have you perhaps been looking at Christ only at a distance? This morning, won't you embrace him? Won't you come to him as a hungry person that he might 
fill you up. So, we've seen what it means that Jesus is the bread of life and what we are to do with the bread of life, what this eating that Jesus is talking about means. So let's consider now, what happens when we eat of this bread? What happens when we come to this Jesus? What happens when we believe in him and take him to ourselves in faith and hope and trust? Listen to this cadence that we hear throughout the passage. I'm just going to read you five verses, and I want you to hear the repetition and the cadence and the rhythm that's here. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 40. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 51. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verse 58. Do you hear the repeated emphasis of what happens when we eat this bread. What do we gain? What do we receive? When we come to Jesus, the bread of life, in repentance and faith, we receive eternal life. Now, perhaps when you hear that, it triggers maybe some skepticism in you. Because let's be honest, Christianity in America has been plagued for decades by an obsessive and maybe almost exclusive focus on eternal life in a way that misses the relevance of the gospel for the here and now. So maybe you've experienced traditions, churches, preachers that sort of talk about the gospel as a fire insurance policy that you should buy now so that you have it later when you die, right? And that Jesus' death and resurrection is primarily about what happens after death and not really about your life now. I've spent much of my ministry trying to remedy that imbalance, reminding us that Jesus commissioned the church to make disciples and not merely converts, reminding us that we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, reminding us that the gospel changes things now, not just later. But in our quest to recapture the right now implications of the gospel, in our quest to embrace the reality that the gospel changes everything right now, I wonder if we've overcorrected. I wonder if perhaps we think too little about eternal life. I wonder if we've surrounded ourselves with so much comfort, if life is just so kind of easy for us that we don't long for eternity and hope in the promise of eternal life the way our forefathers did. I was thinking this week about my own family history. And I remembered uh, my grandfather lost his first wife at age 28. She died in childbirth. Likewise, my great-grandmother was 30 when her husband died in a railroad accident, and she raised two kids by herself as a widow. And I just wonder if those tragedies early in life made eternal life a more precious reality for them than it sometimes is for me. Like, I wonder if we just don't think enough about what a fantastic promise it is that in Jesus, 
We have eternal life. Like that's kind of a big deal. I want to remind you this morning of the good news that's at the heart of the Christian message. And it is this, the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered death. And so if you come to him, if you believe in him, he will raise you up on the last day and you will live forever. That's a pretty amazing promise. Listen, I know I said this when we preached through Ecclesiastes a few months ago, but we're a young church, so we probably need to think about it frequently. Every single person in this room is going to die. I would guess there's maybe 300 of us sitting here this morning. Eventually, this building is going to host 300 funerals. And I know there's a lot of things we need in life. I know there's a lot of things you long for about your circumstances and ways you need God to meet you and ways that even in maybe your inner life, you want to experience God's grace. But you know what you need most of all? You need a hope that not even death can take away. That's the hope that has always anchored and animated Christians throughout history, no matter how great or how terrible their circumstances have been. The one thing that always animates Christian faith is the comfort and the confidence of a hope that death cannot take away. Two things should be distinct and different about Christians, the way we live and the way we die. If you believe in Jesus, friends, death is not the end. So you can face death with courage and hope and joy and confidence because Jesus promises that he will raise his people up on the last day. Notice the contrast Jesus draws in verse 49. It's kind of, it's maybe even a little bit humorous when you think about the people he's talking to and how deeply the story of God's provision in the wilderness through Moses was foundational to their whole sense of themselves. Like, like God's provision of manna in the wilderness was the high point of the story of the Exodus. I mean, it is massively important to the history of God's people. Jesus says in verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Like what he's saying is as good and miraculous of a provision of God as that was, they still died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is on his way to the cross where he will die in our place and give his flesh, his body, for the life of the world. The death that you deserve and that I deserve, he will take upon himself so that the life that he has, a life that is eternal and imperishable and indestructible, can be yours. Friend, come eat of this bread. Come trust in this death. Come embrace this Savior. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Come to me. Believe in me. Be satisfied. Be filled. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, when we finally come to Jesus, when we hear his gracious invitation, when we become aware of our hunger, when we respond and come to him, here's what happens. We realize that the Father has been drawing us all along. 
Look at John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We have a tendency to pit divine sovereignty and human responsibility against each other, as though it's either God drawing me to Jesus or me choosing to follow Jesus. The Bible says it's both. You must come to Jesus. The invitation is clear. Come to me, believe in me, eat of this bread. And all whom the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. Behind all of this is the Father's gracious initiative to draw people to Christ. In March 2020, the whole world was suddenly hungry for bread. No one really knows why. It's kind of a mystery. I guess you leave me alone in my living room with nothing to do, having a Zoom on everything, and all of a sudden I wish I was eating some bread, right? But what's funny about that is, is it's actually kind of a great picture of exactly what happened spiritually. It's suddenly, by the irresistible grace of God, you become hungry for the bread of life. And you find yourself drawn to Jesus in faith and repentance, and he becomes your life. It's exactly how God works in our souls to bring us, to give us a hunger for Jesus. And then, once we come to him in faith and baptism, we also come to him in the Eucharist, at the Lord's table in communion. We come as we gather in worship to eat his flesh and drink his blood with his people. Not physically, but symbolically and spiritually. You can bet that the very first Christians reading this chapter of John's gospel would surely have seen a connection to the Lord's Supper. Like, can you imagine John finishing up the writing of this gospel and like handing it off to the the very first Christians, and them opening up the scroll and reading his account and getting to this part? Of course they thought about communion. Absolutely, because it just works on that register. When they read this account, when the early Christians read this account of Jesus saying, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, they would have understood that he was talking about the cross. And they also would have seen the connection to the Eucharist, to the Lord's table. When we come to this table, it's not the bread that saves us. It's the faith expressed in the action of eating and drinking. What are you doing when you come forward to this table? You're getting out of your chair and you're walking your body forward in a room full of Christians to a table where someone hands you bread and wine. And in so doing, you are expressing bodily the faith, the hope, and the trust that you have that Jesus Christ really did die for sin and that he really was raised from the dead and that his body and blood really do forgive sins. We come trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus and we are nourished by his presence spiritually. We come to him hungry that he may fill us. And so, of course, this is the appropriate action to take course, this meal has a symbolic reference for those who trust in Jesus. I am the bread of life, Jesus says to us this morning. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me 
shall never thirst. I want you to think about that for a minute. And think about what Jesus is saying. This coming to him, this believing in him, absolutely happens at a moment in time. There's a moment in time where you become aware of Jesus giving his flesh for the life of the world. You realize his death on the cross is the payment for your sins and you come to him in faith. Absolutely, that happens at a moment in time. And are you telling me you've never been hungry for anything since then? Telling me you've never been tempted to quench your thirst somewhere else? Of course you have. So have I. So this hungering and thirsting, this coming to him to eat and drink is a repeated action. That's why we gather here every Sunday. We don't gather here to say, hey, we're still Christians, right? We gather here to say, and you know what we need? We need to be reoriented, recentered, brought back to Jesus as our satisfaction and our life and as the source of every good. We need to confess the ways we've sought this week for meaning and significance and purpose and life in other places. And we need to bring our hearts and our minds and our souls back to the truth that Jesus is the bread of life. So whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this morning, even if you find yourself hungry and thirsty for the wrong kinds of things, you come in Jesus, to Jesus in faith, trusting this promise. Yep, actually, he really is the one who satisfies our hunger. Yep, he really is the one who quenches our thirst. And we need to come to him and be reminded again and again of his grace and his goodness. So friend, come to him, believe, and eat. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life. We look back to your provision for your people in the wilderness. We remember that you gave them bread from heaven. And we hear this morning Jesus saying, I am the true bread from heaven. So we recognize that our hunger, our needs, our longings are fulfilled in Jesus. We thank you for sending him. And we pray this morning that you would awaken fresh faith in us, fresh hunger in us. This morning, help us bring our thirsty souls before you and be renewed in hope and faith. Help us come to Jesus again in trust. We thank you that you invite us to come to you, to believe in you. And we pray for some, this would be the first moment of that belief. And we pray for others, this would be a renewal, a rekindling of that hope and faith and trust. And so we come to you again as the bread of life. Fill us up this morning for our good and for your glory. Amen.